This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, open year-round. Learn more at bbg.org. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of the next episode of Meet and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're fresh off our trip to Slow Food Nations in Denver, a festival that brought together advocates to discuss the future of food. And this week, we're bringing you a special episode inspired by the new Equity, Inclusion, and Justice Manifesto released by Slow Food USA. If we're going to solve food security, we need to say these people have a right to good, healthful food. But we have to do that in a way that kind of insulates this system from the vagaries of the market. Because when you're at a table with somebody, you recognize their humanity. And when somebody cooks for you and serves you food, in a way they're saying they care about your survival. How can we put things into our own hands and have the people of Puerto Rico gain real access to healthy local foods? Listen to Meet and 3 this week for our highlights from Slow Food Nations, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to Why Food, a podcast about innovators, entrepreneurs, and career changers who make up the food industry. Um, I'm a little uh, uh, sore throated this week, as you can probably hear. So I'm just going to do my my sexy late night uh, radio DJ voice for this interview. And unfortunately, Jenny is traveling, so it's just me, your lone co-host Ethan Frisch, in the studio with an incredible guest. Uh, this week, we're really honored to have Garrett Oliver, who's the brewmaster of the iconic, the famous Brooklyn Brewery. Um, Garrett, thanks so much for joining us. There's nothing wrong with my voice, Ethan. No, no. My you, voice. <laughs> you already have a, a great radio voice. You don't have to be sick for three days to sound like it. Um, so, Garrett, you started your career in, in film and, and music production, uh, uh, stage managing bands in Boston. Um, and now you work in beer. You are a, a globally recognized authority on beer. You're the brewmaster, obviously, of Brooklyn Brewery and have created amazing, amazing beers there and, and written several books. And I mean, I could, I could spend the whole hour talking about your accomplishments, but I want to know, uh, to start us off, what was, what was the process like to switch from, from your previous career, if you would call it that, to your current one? What was, was there uh, in, in that process, in uh, acknowledging that there were many, many moments that made that up, was there a particular moment where you said, this is what I have to be doing? Well, you know, it did happen slowly. There was certainly a, a, a tipping point, you know, that, uh, that came uh, in 1989 when I went, you know, to start professional work for uh, Manhattan Brewing Company. And uh, it's, it's a thing that you kind of come to realize when you do something, you know, on an amateur scale uh, and you do it professionally that the two look the same, but they're not actually that related. You know, the difference between, uh, and this is not in any way a, a, a slight, you'll understand what I mean, but the difference between being a home brewer and being a professional brewer is the difference between being in Little League and being in Major League Baseball. One matters and one really kind of doesn't. <laughs> yeah. uh, and a hobby is a hobby. And the great thing about a hobby is that it doesn't matter. It is if you mess it up, you know, everything is pretty much still the same for you tomorrow. You mess that beer up. Your friends think that it sucks. So what? You know, it's not going to lose you your house. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the kids will still have shoes, you know, et cetera. But when you do, when you make a grand mistake, uh, professionally, there are consequences, and uh, it focuses the mind. It does good things and bad things. It makes you more serious, but it also brings fear. You know, and fear can make you be more timid and less creative. Um, or you can say, "I'm here in a situation that matters now, and I, now I'm going to really do my thing." And I think it's a it's a thing people don't quite realize is uh, you know whenever you look at a restaurant or uh, a musical album or whatever else, like you're putting yourself out there. It's it's risk, yeah. um, and uh, you know you you feel it. So do you do you were there certain beers that you made at the Manhattan Brewing Company or early on at Brooklyn Brewery where you 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 encountered that you you in retrospect realized that you made a mistake? Oh, absolutely. Um, and you know there have been ones that have happened at at Brooklyn Brewery where you know uh, 
that have turned out less than what I wanted them to, or ones that I thought turned out great and the general public didn't really agree. Um, and the thing is, you know, uh, that's going to happen. Like if you're if you're gonna if you want to do something that in somewhere in your mind is art, and there is no risk, and you're not sometimes gonna do a face plant, you're definitely not doing it right. You know, you 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 have to step out there and and have a go. And sometimes it's just either not gonna work out, or it's not gonna work out the way you think. I can't remember what film it was. I think it was called like 1942 or something. You know, uh, you know Spielberg film. I've still never seen it myself. I mean, which is an absolute bomb. And at the time, Steven Spielberg was on top of the world. And this thing comes out and just does a complete belly flop in the box office. And, you know, can you imagine? You know, I'm sitting here feeling sorry, sorry for myself. It's like, nobody likes my beer. Well, <laughs> I was like, I thought it was great. Can you imagine if you had like a thousand people working with you on this film and somebody had spent millions and millions of dollars and you've been working on it for two years? you know, of your life, and it just, first weekend, just dives into a puddle, it's like, you know, you better have some balls, you know, you gotta, you, you, you gotta, you gotta really bring that to it, it's, yeah. uh, it's not beanbag. So, can you tell us about one of those, one of those face plant beers early on, and, and what you learned from it? I mean, at Brooklyn Brewery, we did a beer, uh, it was called Bright Golding, um, and it was the first of the beers that we were doing where we were really looking to concentrate one particular hop flavor and aroma. And I was really interested as everybody was getting into the American hops in uh, the old British hops. And the main uh, hop of the, uh, of the original IPA style was one called the East Kent Golding. You know, it was the thing that in the uh, you know, late t 1700s and early 1800s was the signature flavor and aroma of pale ale and IPA. And I love that hop usually used in combination with other hops, but as the signature, it has kind of an apricot, stone fruit kind of character to it. Very different than what you normally see out of the American hops. And I thought if we really made a beer based around very pale malt, almost Pilsner-ish, and massive amounts of this hop, that, you know, uh, that would be particularly great. Not so much. I mean, <laughs> I really never came to love that beer. It's just something about... Some things only work up to a point, you know. I mean, I'm sure it works the same in the spice world. It's like a little bit goes a long way. I mean, cardamom could be a good example. It's like, use cardamom at a good level, great. Twice as much, maybe not. Yeah. You know, cumin can be concentrated. You, you can pack as much cumin <laughs> as you want onto the outside of a piece of lamb I, and, like, I, fry I it up. Do, yeah. yeah, and I, I could eat cumin sandwiches. You know, but, uh, and it's a powerful spice, but cardamom is like, yeah, this much is good yeah. and not so much more than that. And I found out it was that way about that. You know, I mean, people liked it. I mean, it wasn't like it didn't sell, but I didn't really like it. And then there were other things where I loved it and people were like, mm, no, like we made a beer a few years ago called Quadriceratops. Um, well, actually that was the original version of it, which was kind of a quadruple style, 10%. Uh, strong, you know, Belgian candy sugar, kind of strong abbey. Very nice. And then we did, as a special bottle edition, we did a version called Quintoceratops, where <laughs> we had uh, put it into a rum barrel. And my mistake, if it was a mistake, was that in my mind, rum has a particular set of flavors. And these are not the set of flavors that your average American thinks of when they think of rum. Because I hang out with cocktail people, and I have hung out with cocktail people for the last 15 to 20 years. So my idea of rum is, is actually really rarefied. Yeah. Um, and real rum is funky as hell. I mean, it does not smell or taste like Bacardi. You know, so this is what people were thinking. Like, oh, rum barrels can taste like caramel, you know. It's like, no, n you know, there's some caramel character, but there's also all this natural fermentation character and what they call the hogo, which is like this slightly scary funk, yeah. you know, that you'll find in, uh, you know, Jamaican pot still, you know, rums like Smith and Cross, yeah. where you're like, whoa. 
And people just really, they were like, I can't go there. They were completely unfamiliar. It was just like they had sm- you know, smelled their first smelly cheese yeah. and were just like, no. <laughs> so, so speaking of smelly cheese- cheeses, you moved to Europe right after college and, and had sort of an epiphany um, encountering new cheeses and new beers in, in France and in the UK. Tell us about that about that process, what it was like to, to taste real beer for the first time. Well, when I got to the pub first day, you know, before I even had a place to live and I had like all my belongings in my back. How old were you? Uh, I would have been, I would have just turned 21 because I graduated actually at 20, um, and turned 21 over the summer because I skipped first grade. Um, (laughs) And so, um, yep, mom taught me to read. And by the time I got to kindergarten, I was reading the New York Times. They didn't like that very much. So they, they skipped me. Um, and so uh, when, I, when I got there, I went straight to the pub. And they gave me a pint that looked the size of a fishbowl. I mean, the thing was huge. And the beer was amber. I had never even heard of an amber-colored beer before. And it had very little carbonation. And it was almost warm. Yeah, room temperature. Yeah, it was like room temperature. And, and, and I was like, what the hell is this stuff? To me, beer was cold. It was fizzy. It was yellow. And I didn't really like it. And nobody I knew really liked it. You know, it was just fine. It was there. You drank it. You know, and frankly, we drank Budweiser when we had money. You know, because <laughs> Budweiser tasted like water. But the other beers tasted much, much worse than water. Right. <laughs> so... And this stuff tasted like suddenly there were like waves of grain and 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 gra- and, and hay and grass and flowers and like my head exploded. And I got to the end of this pint and I'm like, I'm not sure I liked that. I better have another one to find out. <laughs> and I, you you went to this, to find out that each beer had a very distinctly different flavor. You know, not variations on one flavor, but really distinctly different flavors. Like this beer tastes like bananas, and this one tastes like this, and this one is like really kind of, you know, uh, high and tight and stony. And uh, in very early days, I was completely, you know, blown away by it into it. And then I traveled to Belgium, I went to France, I went to Czechoslovakia, and everybody had their own many styles of beer. And then I got back to the United States, they were like Bud, Bud Light, Miller, Miller Light, Coors, Coors Light, Heineken. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> um, and and growing up, you you also had a, a fascinating sort of family approach to food. Tell us about uh, some of the the cooking and and foraging you did with your father. Well, there was a there was a dichotomy. I'll put it that way between you know my mother's utilitarian approach to food, which frankly, I mean, it was you know, a lot of times still to this day the way you know housework is divided up is sexist. And, uh, you know, we're talking about the 60s and 70s here. My mom, uh, uh, up until a certain point, you know, was at home cooking for, you know, for three boys and, uh, and, and her husband. And so she cooked the same way everybody else cooked. I mean, there was a lot of frozen food. Um, there were, like, really two or three meats. You know, we never ate lamb or anything like that. We never ate duck. There were, there were none of these other things around. Um, you know, there were... But what there was... And I came to realize this later and appreciate it later is that we had a real blend of cultures going on that was a particular New York thing. You know, we used to eat rice with butter and sugar, which was kind of like a southern thing that a lot of, you know, black people would have brought up, you know, out of the south. As a, um, as a savory main course? Or as a yeah, as a, as a savory main course, you know, I mean, along as a side. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes we would also eat uh, spaghetti with butter and pepper which I later found out was kind of like a, a, an Italian thing. But my mother had grown up around a lot of, uh, in Providence, a lot of Portuguese and Italians uh, uh, around. Uh, I had a great aunt, you know, who used to work for several, you know, Jewish families, and she would always bring over a chopped liver. Now, we loved chopped liver. We had no idea that it was Jewish. It was just a thing that Aunt Emma made. Yeah. You know, and I found out later, like much later, it's like, oh, this has a, you know, this comes from somewhere. You know, and uh, and so, you know, we ate different, completely different stuff every day, often coming from outside the house. But my mother basically cooked the same five or six dishes most of the time over and over again. Um, and we loved garbage food like everybody else did. My father was very early into kind of health kicks and things like that and trying to avoid processed sugar. And, you know, he had a Linus Pauling period where he was really into vitamin C <laughs> You know, and and vinegars and all kinds of stuff, 
But I mean, he was a cool hunter. I mean, he was a guy who was like, you know, in there uh, uh, on Madison Avenue in the late 60s and early 70s, making television commercials and doing print campaigns and really in there with a certain creative class. But then also on the side, going out at the weekend with his friends, who I don't even know where most of these people came from, and <laughs> shooting guns uh, at birds. And we'd take them home and eat them. On horseback. Sometimes on horseback. Uh, and so, yeah, chucker partridge, quail, um, uh, and pheasant were the main things. And, you know, most days we would go out, we'd get something. And uh, it was amazing. I mean, places that are now office parks on Long Island, you know, like uh, parts of Quote, we'd be out there in Pine Barrens, like, letting off shotguns. Um, and my, you know, well, we just didn't really know how weird we were. We had, I had some idea. It wasn't like everybody else in the neighborhood was doing it. But everything else about our life was weird enough. I mean, you know, what our dad did and, and whatever. But, uh, you know, we, we didn't kind of realize how, how strange it was. But it was kind of awesome. And my dad's friends, I mean, they were some very sophisticated people. And then you had a bunch of guys who worked in the cannery uh, and had very colorful language. And they were missing a couple of fingers, you know, and you'd, Find out it's like so-and-so lost his thumb in the hot dog machine or something. And my dad would always laugh. It's like, do you think they throw out three tons of hot dogs just because Jimmy's lost a finger? (laughs) 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 You never really ate many hot dogs again after that. Yeah, I can imagine. And uh, what did you think of the, of the food that, that you hunted? Did you like those? Did you like eating the birds? Did you like the, yeah. the process or, or was it a chore? My dad was a very, very good cook. I mean, um, he was always, even towards the end of his life, he was a very, very good cook. You know, he knew the foundations of sauces and stuff like that. So How when did he you, learn? Uh, I think he learned in the army. I think he learned from like army chefs who probably some of them had been chefs uh, in their in their private lives, uh, in their civilian lives, and so he actually, you know, he didn't cook by rote. You know, he was a very creative, uh, 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 you know, cook, and so you know, we would get like pheasant in a white wine sauce. I mean, wild pheasant in a white wine sauce, you know, on the table, and you knew that you know that that was going to be worth basically plucking the innards out of a warm pheasant. And believe you me, if you want to do something <laughs> disgusting. You know, I mean, I'm like 12 years old, 13 years old, and I'm going to the basement, you know, with a knife and whatever else. And, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't even remember whether I just skinned them or whether I plucked them. I may have done either one. But you, you don't forget pulling the guts out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and how do you feel like that that experience as a kid has shaped your palate or your, your adventurousness in food as an adult? Well, later when I got into slow food, you know, et cetera, this was an ethos that I kind of understood. You know, my dad never let us, we couldn't fish or hunt or participate in any of those things if we were unwilling to clean it and we were unwilling to eat it. Like, you know, you had to go all the way or you couldn't do it. You know, one or the other, you had to have respect, you know, for the thing that you were, that you were working with or, you know, you could step aside and, you know, you could eat it later, but if you actually wanted to go out, you know, uh, uh, you know, hunting or fishing, like, yeah, you can't, like, hand the fish to somebody else and say, well, you know, cook, you know, clean this for me. Yeah. You know, so, so you know, I kind of look at that as kind of part of, uh, you know, the philosophy that comes along with, uh, you know, later stuff with slow food and everything else. So let's fast forward to your adult life. Um Tell us about the, the process of starting to become a home brewer, experimenting with different beers, and and then the decision to leave your, your job at a, a midtown law firm to, to pursue. Well, becoming a home brewer was kind of um, it was a it was a necessity <laughs> because I got back from Europe. I couldn't drink the mass market American beer anymore, which meant that I didn't have any beer, which made me very unhappy. And my best friend, you know, in high school, Larry, you know, we're going out for dinner tonight, so we're still, you know, good friends uh, after all these years, um, uh, said, uh, well, you gave me a homebrewing kit for Christmas and said, you know, you're always complaining about beer now. Why don't you just go make your own? So I did. And at first it was kind of a utilitarian thing, but it was completely fascinating. I had no idea what beer was made of or how it was made, whatever else, and to, you know, take this inert seeming stuff and like watch it just come alive in front of your eyes was incredible. And when I was a little kid, you know, I grew plants in the backyard. I might have been the only kid in Queens with a stand of corn in his backyard. I mean, I had like 16 plants or something, but I took very careful care of each of these. And, you know, it's 
you can watch corn grow virtually in the middle of the summertime. It's quite a thing when you're a little kid and you put this thing in the ground and you literally watch it three inches taller in one day, um, you know, which is uh, super cool. And in a way, as an adult, this was like I was growing something, but it, it was dynamic. And at the end, you had booze. <laughs> and, and it was much, much better than a corn plant. <laughs> yeah. And, but like you said earlier, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge, it's a totally different mindset to, to make something at home as a hobby versus to do it professionally. Oh, yeah. And so, my main worry was yeah. that I was going to ruin it. It's like, here's something that's really, really fun and very meaningful. And will this make it more meaningful or will it turn into a job and this will ruin it and I'll never enjoy it again? Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, it can go either way. And I certainly have had days, you know, <laughs> where it went the other way. Thankfully, by and large, it's gone the correct way. What was, what was the, the decision like ultimately to say, this has been fun as a hobby, but I want to devote my life to this? I'm not sure that I knew that I was, you know, there wasn't a jump to be taken unless I were to start my own brewery, which wasn't a thing you could even really think about back then. Um, at least not for me, you know, it's like, not like I had money or, or whatever else. So I was going to Manhattan Brewing Company, which was an early brew pub. They opened November 9th of 1984. And I remember that cause I was there. Um, and they did British style beer on the hand pump cast conditioned. The guy had come from Samuel Smith's major British, you know, uh, old school brewery, um, and came to New York in 84 to open this place up guy named Mark Witte. And so I had gone to see Mark borrowing some yeast or something like that. Mark would interact. As, as one does. As sure. one does. Mark would interact with the homebrewing groups. Uh, and I said, so how are things going? He said, well, things are a lot tougher now that my assistant has left. And I, <laughs> I pretty much grabbed him by the collar and said, I want that job. Um, and a couple of weeks later, I was in a room full of boiling liquid uh, in July with no air conditioning. Now this was, I, this was at the law firm that you worked at. No, yeah, no, I'm kidding, the, I'm yeah, yeah. I had been working at a law firm for the last couple of years. It had originally been a temp job, but yeah. then it turned into a job job, and it paid so much money that I just and it was interesting enough. I liked my boss. I had a window office on the fifty second floor. I was doing film and running like clubs and things like that on the side. Um, and so it really allowed me a lot of freedom and I was good enough at it that I could take off and go do things, you know, like, you know, Hey boss, I'm going to China for two weeks. Um, sure. you know, it's like I could, I could go do that cause I knew that the job would still be there when I got back because I, because you, you didn't, I was not a guy that you want to get rid of. I was good at the thing that I did. Yeah. And so I traveled all over the place. I constantly went to Europe. This sounds crazy now, but in the old days, uh, the couriers like TNT Skypack was a big one, but you know the DHLs of the world, etc. When they did an overnight pack, when they did overnight packages, they would have mail bags, bail, you know, bags of mail that was supposed to be overnighted to Europe. What they would do, and in the world of current security, this sounds insane, is you would check in as the courier, freelance courier. And they, you would carry nothing but carry-on luggage, and your two luggage berths of check-in luggage would be two massive sacks of mail. And all you would have to do was at the other end, you went into this office, and you gave the manifests for those bags to this guy who checked them out and then let you go. And so as a result, I would fly to Europe for like $50 or for free. I would leave sometimes. I remember one time, and I was... I, I'd always had a fantasy about doing this. I came to work on Friday, and I used to carry my passport because I didn't drive at the time, and so I had no driver's license, so I need my passport to, like, you know, in case I got carded or whatever. And, uh, you know, I'm talking to my friends. What are we going to do at the weekend? And they, I got a call. It's like, can you go to London tonight? And I'm at work, and it's like noon, and I'm like, hey, uh, Vic, can I take Monday off? He's like, sure. And at like two o'clock, I leave. I'm carrying like nothing, basically. A I have a, I, I, I carry a briefcase. I have no no clothes, no nothing. I have a passport, and I go to the airport and I fly out to London for the weekend. Drink a lot of beer. And, yeah, and go to, yeah, yeah, go see my friends. Like I, I I bought clothes and underwear when I got there. Yeah, sure. It was like, it was all good. But I showed up. It's like, where's your luggage? It's like 
this is my luggage. Da 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 da. Garrett Oliver's secret yeah, exactly. Um, and so then, uh, mm. 1989, you find yourself in yeah, in uh, at Manhattan Brewing Company, yeah. and uh, I didn't realize how costed my life had been. You know, I I was wearing a tie every day. I was in an office. I was on the 52nd floor. Of course, the air conditioning at Rogers and Wells was excellent. Room full of boiling liquid. And basically, suddenly, I'm a glorified plumber. And I'm saying to myself, like, why why am I here? This was fun when it was at home. Uh, and I, I was fine at work. And it's 98 degrees in here. Two weeks in, I burned several square inches of skin off my left arm. Um, I had my first accident. And I was absolutely miserable for a few weeks and thought I had made a horrible, you know, uh, a choice, and then slowly but surely, you'd kind of get into it. You go downstairs and you'd see people, and it was a brew pub, enjoying the stuff that you had brewed, you know. And you're like, "Wow, life just flows out of this thing that we're doing." You know, we can take this grain and hops and everything else and water and put it together, and we do this magic. And then out of it comes everything from, you know. Love affairs, fights, children, war, everything. You know, like life just kind of, you know, flows out of what what it is that you do. It's like yeah. this is the best thing in the world. This is like magic, yeah. you know. And it and it still strikes me that way. That's great. We're gonna take a quick break. A word from our our sponsors, and we'll be back with Garrett Oliver, brewmaster of Brooklyn Brewery. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays year-round. On Thursday, August 23rd, Brooklyn Botanic Garden will host the Beer and Bocce Benefit, a one-of-a-kind garden party featuring lawn games, live music, and unlimited beer tastings by some of Brooklyn's top beer makers. Proceeds from the Beer and Bocce Benefit provide essential support for the garden's educational and community programs. And mark your calendars for the annual Chili Pepper Festival on Saturday, September 29th. New York's hottest fall tradition will set the garden ablaze with scorching bands from around the world, dozens of fiery food artisans, and hours of chili chocolate debauchery. Learn more about Brooklyn Botanic Garden at bbg.org. The trees have eyes like diamond rings in the holy garden, holy garden, I see them I'm Souther Teague of Amoria Margo and co-host of the Speakeasy right here on Heritage Radio Network. You know, my favorite thing to do every week is to come here and be on the show. I have lots of jobs, I'm a very busy person, um, and I do this because I love it. I get to sit down and talk to all my heroes for about an hour every week. It's incredible. And I hope that you enjoy it, making a great effort to share with you. And we'd like you to share back with us. It's our summer fundraiser, and we'd love for you to donate uh, at heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate. You can click on the beating heart, and you can even choose shows that you'd like to donate to specifically. And you can also choose a recurring monthly uh, gift. Uh, And for all that, we'd be greatly appreciative. Thank you so much. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food. We're sitting here today with Garrett Oliver, the brewmaster of Brooklyn Brewery. And he has very generously brought a couple of their, I think, do you call them ghost bottles? Is that well, the, uh, the... You know, the, these are kind of our specialty bottling. So the ghost bottles are things that you can't buy. Oh, okay. These are things that you probably can't find now, but, you know, came from like the last few years of stuff that we did actually release, kind of one-offs. Um, you know, we, we, we used to call this the BQE series, the Brooklyn <laughs> quarterly experiment, which since I drive on the BQE, I never thought was very funny, but <laughs> so tell us about these two bottles that you brought. Well, uh, you know, since you're a guy, you know, with a, uh, well, a background, any foreground in spices, um, I thought I would bring you uh, a couple of spiced beers. Wow. Um, so one of these was a collaboration with, uh, our mutual friend, uh, Lior Lev Serkers, um, the yeah. spice blender. And the other one was kind of a, you know, a, a thing with my cocktail friends. So Triple Burner 
was, uh, you know, was a beer that uh, basically I went to Lior, you know, who's a great blender, you know, of, of spices yeah, and incredible. said, you know, putting flavors together. And it's very interesting to bounce, you know, ideas off of somebody. I said, okay, I have an idea. I basically have a canvas that I'm going to stretch for you. And it's going to be a triple, which is a particular style. Uh, triple is always pale. It's around 10%. Um, it has a, a particular like light rummy kind of character to it, uh, usually re-fermented in the bottle. Uh, I'm going to age this in, uh, in French oak for a year. Um, and since he's a, used to be a chef you know, with uh, Daniel Balud for 10 years, he could mentally add in the oak element. Um, and then I want you to basically tell me what spices that you want to use. And he says, uh, he tasted the beers, et cetera. He comes back to me a week later. He says, I want to do black licorice and figs. And I said to myself, oh, no. (laughs) Because the funny thing about a collaboration, and we were the first brewery in the world to do collaborations. Um, You know, uh, I I was surprised when I found this out, but I was told it by some British journalists who were writing a book about it. And they said, and we even discovered that you, in fact, were the first one to do this which makes me 400 years old. Um, but in any event, the thing about a collaboration is that, yes, you, know, you certainly do want to work with this person, but sometimes what you really want is to do a thing that fits in with you completely and is partly their idea, but that you agree with 100%. Yeah. But that's not necessarily what a collaboration really is. In a real collaboration, sometimes there's some give and take. And I was saying to myself, well, I don't really like licorice. Um, I'm okay with figs, but I don't really like licorice. And I came through actually doing this. But I didn't say this to him. I'm like, you know, I committed. I said paint on it, and he painted on it. Let's, we have to do it. And so what I discovered through this, though, is that I didn't actually know what licorice was. I mean, I thought of licorice, you know, through licorice candies and things that I thought were licorice flavored that in fact turned out to be Annie's flavor, which is not really related to licorice and has a completely different set of flavors. So really the main flavor here is uh, powdered black licorice. The name of the beer is Triple Burner, um, which is a illusion. uh, It's kind of a double entendre, triple being the other underlying style. And triple burner being a, you can let it, you just let, let it pop. We don't have to. Right, uh, here we go. <laughs> um, I was reading about licorice. I was trying to come up with a name. I'm reading about licorice, and I discovered this whole thing about licorice within Chinese traditional medicine. And it turns out that uh, in, in Chinese traditional medicine, there are your actual organs, which are the ones that you can see. And then there are what are almost thought of as conceptual organs, one of which is the triple burner, which is where your air and your food and everything else comes and your food burns you know, uh, with the air to create your chi, you know, which flows out along these 12 meridians through your body. And this, is, you know, this ties in with your acupuncture points and all that. And apparently black licorice is one of the best things to help you control the flow of your chi. And I said to myself, well, he, living here in New York, I, you know, I need to learn how to control the flow of my chi. <laughs> there are some days yeah. that my chi gets out of control. Uh, uh, how can I learn a power like this? So the, we named the beer Triple Burner. So it is about 10%. Um, it, uh, it has uh, in the kettle uh, black licorice and uh, fig powder. Um, it then spent a year in, uh, in French oak and then re-fermented in the bottle. Uh, with champagne yeast. Oh, and as soon as you open it, you you get that the the fig aroma just sort of rises right yeah, out yeah. of the bottle. It smells like like dried fruit. All right, we're gonna taste it. The thing that's fascinating about licorice as a spice is that this beer essentially has no residual sugar. Yeah. Um, it's super dry. However, at first it tastes sweet. Very sweet. You know because. Uh, black licorice, one of the main things about it is that it, it gives you this false sense of sweetness, which is not actual sugar. Uh, and I never really knew any, I mean, I kind of knew that from like, there are these types of candies that are, uh, they're kind of sweet and salty and things like that, kind of uh, Swedish licorice drops and stuff like that. But there's this sweet impression. So this is a beer that, because it actually is dry, it has less than half the residual sugar of Brooklyn Lager. It's like super dry. 
but it has a lot of alcohol. Alcohol tastes sweet on the palate. Um, so this is a beer which has this amazing range of things you can do. I can serve this with Sichuan Chinese food. I can serve it with dessert. I mean, because it has this sweet quality where it can approach a dessert. It also works great with goat cheeses. Yeah. You know, there's this really wide range of things that it can do because of that sweet impression, but not actually being sweet. Yeah. And how do you feel like the oak, the aging in oak, um, plays into that or affects the flavor? Well, you have that kind of, uh, you know, flavor, almost, you know, nut-like flavor, yeah. a little bit of, you know, cinnamon coming off of that. You know, not as much of the sort of big vanilla coconut thing as you get from American oak, but uh, certainly a very mellow uh, uh, character coming out of that. And besides that, you get oxygenation, you know, through the wood over that time. And that kind of rounds all the flavors out. Yeah, it's a little rem reminiscent of, a, of an oaky white wine almost. Yeah, it really is. Or something. You know, and that, you know, and that fruitiness, the way that it opens up, the fruitiness. But then if you kind of taste your tongue, so to speak... Uh, after it goes down, you realize there's no sugar hanging around. Yeah. It's like a ghost. All right, great. We'll just drink the whole bottle and, <laughs> and uh, won't have to worry about yeah. it being too sweet. Yeah, this would be inadvisable, my friend. <laughs> um, but we do have a second bottle to taste if we're not going to drink this whole one. Yeah. Well, um, the, sec us, the second one is super fun. I mean, this is kind of like a, you know, a little bit of a mental exercise. You know, you, I'm sure you've seen things where, you know, um, I can't remember who it was that used to make this, but... Uh, you know, it would say like, okay, pig's foot, and you know what looked like a breaded pig's foot would come on the on the plate, and it would turn out that it was actually all the meat off the pig's feet, molded into the shape of a pig's foot, and breaded, and so you just cut through it like a loaf. And, you know, this is uh, this, this is, is a beer based on the cocktail, the old fashioned. Oh, I thought I thought you were going to say it was a pig's foot beer. <laughs> yeah, uh, nothing quite that exotic. So it is a rye beer. Um, it has about 40% rye, um, and uh, the original Old Fashions are made with rye whiskey. Um, and then it has about 25 different botanicals uh, in there to make up the flavors of bitters, etc. So most of the bitterness is not hops but gentian root uh, here. Uh, you know, sweet spices, nutmeg, uh, cinnamon, mace, chinchona bark, uh, you know, five different kinds of citrus peel. Yeah, it smells, I mean, it smells like cherry. It smells like... Um, and there's not even any cherry in it. It's incredible. like, uh, you know, and then you have the... And then it's aged in uh, whistle pig rye whiskey barrels. And so, um, and that bitterness you get, you can kind of see how the bitterness that it has is not the same as the hot bitterness. It has yeah. this, like, really high-toned, almost slightly astringent on edge of astringency, you know, kind of character to it. Yeah. Um, and so when we did the release party for this, we had, you know, Joaquin Simo from Pouring Ribbons, you know, out of Death & Company, um, was there actually making old fashions, and people were drinking actual old fashions side-by-side side with this beer. And it was, like, so much fun. We had, like, 700 people at this party. It was crazy. Um, and like, um, this was a way of exploring my own geekery, like, figuring out why do you like these flavors together? How can I make something that tastes kind of like this? Um... And in a way, yeah, it's a bit like you know carving a piece of topiary or something. Your, you know, your your hedge does not actually look like a dinosaur, but it reminds you of a dinosaur because it's kind of a funny dinosaur yeah. shape. And this is kind of like that version <laughs> from a culinary point of view. Yeah, and and I guess this gets to a bigger issue that you must have to to juggle a lot the the division, the conflict between creativity, artistry, and having to run a business, having to, to make something that's fundamentally grounded in, in incontrovertible scientific principles that you can't mess with. Um, how do you find that balance? How do you, how do you um, give yourself space for creativity in that context? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly true. And, and in a way, this is very much like making a sequel to a movie, the way you have to think about it. Remember what I said about the Quintoceratops? If someone hasn't seen the first movie, how do you make the second movie, whatever, two? You have to make that still be a movie that you can see by itself without having seen the first one, but also refer to it. So this beer has to refer to an old-fashioned strongly enough that people who've had an old-fashioned recognize it, but it has to also taste good to people who don't know what an old-fashioned tastes like. Yeah. And that's the part where you're looking at commerce and you're like, is this... Do, have, do enough people know what an old-fashioned tastes like for this to go over? You know, will it taste good enough to everybody else at the same time? 
can I do it well enough that my cocktail friends are not going to laugh at me or think that, uh, you know, I've, I've somehow, you know, uh, the whole thing is a travesty, uh, et cetera. And can I convince our marketing department that, like, this is a good idea or do I have to really, you know, fight to talk them into it? Um, and it really depends on what it is. There are things that, uh, I mean, uh, one reason why, after all these years, I'm still at Brooklyn Brewery is that, by and large, you know, anything that I do want to bring out on that level, uh, basically no one's ever, like, put a hand up in my face and said, like, absolutely not. And there are certainly things where, you know, we were among the first people to really bring out a 100% Britannomyces fermented beers, you know, widely available. What does that mean? Um, Britannomyces is a wild yeast strain. So Saccharomyces is like the main species of yeast that ferments beer. Saccharomyces basically, uh, uh, you know, makes acceptable flavored beers for most people. Brett was driven out of beer partially because it makes really funky flavors. And it's kind of part of the range of yeast that are part of the natural wine movement. Um, you know, the way that you see acidity coming back. You know, there used to be all kinds of beers that had uh, a, a, dis a distinctly acidic character. Those were driven out. Beers that had, you know, Brett were driven out. So, you know, what's happening in beer is kind of a redifferentiation of the food culture. Um, and this kind of gets into another subject, but I think, you know, people look at what's happening in the beer world as being weird, but actually it's like, no, this is all normal. The period that you grew up in was the, was the weird one. The matrix is the wrong place. <laughs> like this is actually the right place. You're now living in reality and reality is deep and wide and tall. It is not a monoculture. There were always spices in beer, yeah. always. You know, at a certain point, hops became just about the only spice in beer. But for thousands of years before that, people were really into spices in beer, and they were in everything. They were in wine. Uh, they were really widely used. And it's kind of interesting that in this country, a lack of spices became code word uh, for a certain kind of xenophobia. So, you know, you've almost certainly heard the phrase, like, I'm a meat and potatoes man. Yeah. You know, and that's supposed to kind of bring about a, you know, feeling of, you know, some dude, definitely a dude, probably Republican. He's got a gun, like, you know, and he's a, and he's distinctly he's not ethnic. <laughs> mean potatoes man was a code for saying I'm not Italian yeah. and I'm not Chinese. You know, like I am a real American. I don't eat spices like those people. And so all these things, you know, so we didn't have much in the way of spices when I grew up. I mean, it wasn't spices and everything. Not like I have a massive spice cabinet. Um, and you're like, well, why don't, why, yeah, we were meat and potatoes people most of the time. Yeah. Uh, and, you, and you lose a lot. You know, I think that when you're doing stuff commercially, if you want to be relevant both to yourself and to your customers, you have to push. And the thing that I've learned which took me a long time to learn, longer than I would like to admit, was that I would go to a public tasting, you know, at a cooking school or something, and you might have 100 people in there, and you look at the 75-year-old lady in the back, and she's got a blue rinse, and you're saying to yourself, like, what is she doing here? I had an idea in my head of, like, who our customers were, and she's definitely not it. And we're like, who's this old dude? He must be, like, 80 years old, you know, et cetera. And uh, I had prejudged her that she couldn't handle, I'm like, well, I shouldn't serve really smoky beers or sour beers or funky beers because these people can't handle it. And I kind of discovered that that's actually your own ego telling you that you're special and they're not. Mm. You're wrong. He's <laughs> like, you know, she might have been all over the world. You have no idea who she is. Yeah. You'd have that old guy come up to you afterwards. And this literally happened to me. And he said, I haven't had a beer like this in 60 years, I was stationed uh, in Belgium after World War II, and we used to drink stuff like this all the time. And this really brings you back, and you're like, your mind is completely blown. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, you're, you're piddling a few years you know, on this earth. There's nothing compared to what this guy has. Yeah. And so you can do that. You know, I think that the creativity really is a matter also of trusting that your customer is every bit as good as you, and they may not know as much, but that's irrelevant. It's like, I trust you 
And if you don't like it, that's fine. I have 35 beers that I'm bringing out this year. If you like 20, that's pretty good. <laughs> so how would you uh, describe the, the current lineup at Brooklyn Brewery? Oh, it's really exciting these days because we're really kind of getting back into, I was talking about the acidic end of things. You know, Bel Air for us, which has uh, been working on for three, four years, um, you know, dry hopped sour, um, is, uh, I mean, it's, it's gone like a rocket. I mean, people, it was one of those things where say, people would say, I don't really like sour beers. And then they would taste this. And it's sour, no doubt about it. But it's like really refreshing and dry and has this almost pineapple-like fruitiness to it. It's super tropical. It's fun to drink. And after you've had one, you want another one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is, which is one of the things that beer should be able to do most of the time. I don't think you necessarily want to drink a whole bunch of uh, the old-fashioned. It's more like a, a cocktail. Um, but, you know, Triple Burner, I've had quite a few of those at once. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it, it's uh, bring, helping bring that back. And not that other people aren't doing it as well. Um, but, you know, we've been working on it for a while. And, you know, bringing the sour beers back over the last few years has been, like, really fun. And over lunch, you had talked about uh, Brooklyn Brewery and, and your different offerings as sort of, uh, planets in a solar system. How would you, how do, could you tell us a little more about that, how that all fits Yeah, together? I mean, a Brooklyn Lager is definitely like the sun in the middle of our solar system. It, uh, it, uh, it powers everything. It keeps the lights on. It heats your house. It's, you know, it's, it's the thing. And everybody knows it, and we're really grateful for that. Uh, uh, but around it are planets like Sriracha Ace and, uh, you know, and our IPAs and, and Bel Air now, etc. The things that I just served you are basically moons going around those planets. From a distance, you might not even see them, but it's all one system. And you know, those are like the the far outer reaches. And around those, there's like little bits that fly by, like the ghost bottles, all the many things that we make that we don't actually sell. You know, I've got thirty or forty beers at the brewery right now that you can't ever buy, but I might serve at a dinner or at a tasting or whatever else, because they're often one-offs using wild yeast from fermentations of other drinks, like, you know, local, you know, local ferment, naturally fermented wines. Our friends from the Red Hook Winery, we've used uh, stuff from uh, Hermann Wiemer uh, to drive secondary fermentations and just kind of explore other things. But you get from the winery what they give you, and then maybe you make eight barrels, and that's like, you know... Maybe it's 100 cases. I'm not just going to sell 100 cases. Like, drink them. Yeah. Give them to your friends. Serve them to some of your customers here and there and have some fun. Um, we're going to, in the last five minutes, we're going to switch directions a little bit. Uh oh. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask you, a, we're going to do a more rapid fire kind of question series to close the interview. I am prepared. All right, here we go. <laughs> um, how would you define success? Oh, we talked about this earlier. It's like, well, I, I still feel the same. Um, you know, becoming the person that you basically always claimed you were in public. You know, if you can even come anywhere near to the way you've acted or to be as good as as you pretended to be, uh, then you're finally doing well. So do you do you still feel a sense of imposter syndrome? Absolutely. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm I always feel like I'm like Batman. Like I was <laughs> I was never I don't actually have the superpowers. You know, uh, uh, I was, I I wear a cool costume, (laughs) you know, I was never the smartest guy in the room, but I am tenacious and very, very clever (laughs) and, and creative, you know, and, uh, if you're creative and tenacious, you know, and clever, you don't have to have superpowers. Yeah. I know maybe two geniuses in beer and they're not in this room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, uh, if you could, uh, acquire a skill, master a skill overnight, what would it be? Ooh, that's uh, I assume it has to be a, a real actual skill. It could be I would, I would love to have like just unbelievable knife skills. I mean, whether it is, you know, I'll, I'll take that from, but, from, from, you know, uh, meat butchery to, you know, you know, sushi, uh, 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 knife skills. You know, I kind of feel like I'm, you know, I have some really nice cutlery and I'm good with it, but I don't have like crazy skills. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you cook with your crazy night skills? Oh, I, w- I would definitely buy you know serious you know serious um, uh, uh, fish, and yeah, I would make I would definitely be doing sushi at home. Mm. Not that I don't wouldn't do it anyway, uh, but to really you know I've watching guys you know take apart a tuna or whatever else, and you're like, boy, that's that's real physical skill in doing something like that. Yeah. And how about a superpower? If you had a superpower, what would it be? 
Um, hmm. I, well, I mean, <laughs> strength is overrated. I'd rather fly. <laughs> you sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where would you fly to? Uh, oh, I mean, uh, right now, I mean, right uh, off uh, the bat. yeah, no, it's like, never mind that. <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, there are places that I still, that I want to fly even on a plane that I haven't been to yet. I really want to go to India. I really want to go to Thailand, you know, which is like a big hole if you like in my, uh, and I'm hopefully going to make it there within the next year. Um, those are the two places kind of like at the top of my list, but there are really so many, you know, I did, uh, you know, global entry where, you know, you, oh, sure. uh, uh, just get the line. Yeah. And I had to, I had to tell them like every country that I was in, in the last five years, and I figured out that I've been in twenty, so like twenty three countries in the last in the Not you know shabby, in the last yeah. five years. So yeah, get around a bit. Yeah. All right, Gareth. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Um, tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can follow your work, where they can pick up a, a bottle of one of the lovely beers you've brought to taste today. Well, you can find a bunch of our stuff uh, at BrooklynBrewery.com. You can find. Uh, me at I Garrett Oliver on Instagram or just uh, Garrett Oliver it's on a, Facebook. A great Instagram account. <laughs> I can, uh... Yeah, I got a I got a cool, I got a cool knife today from my friend uh, Fingal Ferguson <laughs> in in Cork, Ireland. That thing is beautiful. What are you What are you cutting up with it? What are you using? I don't for? know. I don't know the first thing I'm going to use uh, 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 on it. Uh, there's part of me that wants to just uh, you know maybe go get some summer corn and take uh, take kernels off. Or uh, I, I don't know if there's really a beautiful tomato around quite yet, but. Toss you know. it in the air. And yeah, just, like, yeah, exactly. Like, 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 yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, thank you to all of our <laughs> listeners. Um, thanks to uh, David Tattashore, our amazing engineer, and um, uh, Blind by the Red Crickets, our awesome theme song. I'm Ethan Frisch, your co-host. You can find me uh, via my spice company at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram or burlapandbarrel.com. And as always, please reach out. Tell us uh, questions you have for our upcoming guests. Make suggestions, people you'd like to hear us talk to. Why food at heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks, and see you next week. So fresh. <laughs> <laughs>